Well, we've had the opportunity to sing many songs this morning already about this concept of forgiveness. When most people think about forgiveness, they primarily have in mind a process by which some person, some victim, some offended person experiences a change in feelings or attitude toward their offender. They overcome negative emotions like resentment or desire for revenge. In other words, forgiveness in the modern context is primarily understood in a psychological sense. We might use the word forgiveness in a financial sense, speaking about the forgiveness of a debt or something like that, absolving someone of that financial obligation. But on a popular level, when people speak about forgiveness, they're primarily thinking in emotional terms, from an emotional standpoint. You need to forgive someone. They're talking about some resolution that you need to make in your heart. But the idea of pardoning or releasing someone from guilt has almost been completely eliminated from the modern concept of forgiveness. Because pardoning or releasing someone from punishment or guilt implies that you have authority to punish them to begin with. And if there's anything the modern world doesn't like, it is authority or notions of authority. So people try to speak about forgiveness, but with no real discussion of accountability, with no real idea of judgment. And, and so there is no one over your daily life from whom you need to be absolved. You may have bad feelings, but that's about as far as it goes. You might hope that someone experiences a change in their feelings towards you if you need what you think is forgiveness, but you don't really think of them needing to absolve you or of being your judge. Since most people assume that no one has authority over them these days. But even though they don't think about forgiveness in that way, even though they don't think about sort of notions of judgment and authority or the need to have uh, someone absolve them or pardon them, even though that is not prominent in the ideas of forgiveness, still their innate conscience cannot be quieted. They still battle inside of them, a battle that rages all the time with a whole array of negative emotions that are arising out of the fact that they cannot escape this idea of accountability, this idea of judgment. And so they respond with a whole range of things, a whole range of emotions from fear to anxiety to even anger and sometimes disgust toward other people. All because they're really not sure what to do with, with what they're experiencing inside in terms of their conscience. And of course, there are industries, billions and billions of dollars of industry that help them with those emotions by drowning them with substances, uh, alcohol and drugs or vaping or whatever it is. They try to quell the anxious feelings that they're having in their heart. Or they just sort of 
sort of muddle through life in the constant grip of anxiety or despair or in some cases just deep depression. It's all around us. It is the, it is the, 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 the water in which we swim. It's constantly portrayed uh, for us in our uh, theaters and, and uh, our, our movies. It's constantly discussed in our classrooms and academia. There are commercials that we have to endure day after day that are pumping and promoting all kinds of products. There are, there are ads for alcohol and uh, there are depictions of that, not to mention the the, the carnage and wreckage that sort of tears through homes all the time over all of this guilt and all of this anxiety. But the simple and the liberating truth is this. You need to be forgiven. Not in an emotional or interpersonal sense, but in a judicial and divine sense. You have guilt, and it's not just emotional. You have real violation, real wrongdoing. You have guilt from sin, and your sin needs to be pardoned, and it needs to be wiped away. You need to be forgiven. And the liberating truth is that you are actually under an authority from heaven, God who stands as your judge, and you stand guilty before Him, And yet, He is compassionate and He is gracious. He's willing to forgive all your offenses and all your violations and all your wrongdoings. He's willing to forgive all of that and He'll do it simply on the basis of faith. That's the fundamental ingredient that He seeks. That's what He asks for. That you believe. You believe, Scripture says you're saved. You believe, and the Scripture says God will forgive your sins. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, none of that sounds particularly shocking, but for many people, it was, and it is. It's not just shocking, it is offensive. For some people, it is detestable. The idea that they would need to be forgiven or it is detestable the idea that God would grant forgiveness on the simple principle of faith. And our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 9 plunges us directly into debates, if you will, on these fundamental issues surrounding the idea of forgiveness. It's a passage directly addressing the question of forgiveness. Is it possible? Is it even necessary? And if it is, who has the right to grant you forgiveness? And all of it comes to us through the story of the healing of a paralyzed man who was brought to Jesus, carried by his friends on a stretcher. Let me begin just by reading this passage for us in the opening chapter of Matthew chapter 9, we read that getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. That really is a a sort of the closing uh, verse, if you will, from the preceding section at the end of chapter 8. Remember, he had gone across the sea, and then Matthew tells us he came 
back across the sea. And then in chapter, excuse me, in chapter 9, verse 2, he picks up with what is an entirely different story. It's not even really connected to the episode on the lake. Uh, in fact, if there were an opportunity to rewrite the chapter titles or the, actually the, the chapter breaks in the New Testament, it would have been more appropriate to put chapter 9, verse 1 at the end of chapter 8 and to pick up with a whole new chapter because what Matthew records for us here is an episode that actually occurred uh, several months earlier in Christ's ministry. And yet he puts it here because it sort of punctuates a theme he's been making uh, throughout chapter uh, the, uh, the entirety of chapter 8, about Jesus' authority, uh, authority over the elements, authority over nature, authority over demons, and authority over physical brokenness. And you'll see he picks up here in verse 8, Behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you might know the Son of Man has authority on earth. To forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This uh, story, of course, is not the first healing that we read about in the book of Matthew. It's not the first one Jesus had performed. It's not the first one the disciples or even the scribes had seen. But it is a unique one in the sense that Jesus uses it to draw out a very important implication of his life and ministry, particularly as it relates to physical healing and even spiritual healing and Matthew reports it to us with four basic elements the first one in verses one or really verse two is when Jesus pardons the sin of this paralytic Matthew simply tells us some people brought him this paralytic he doesn't give us a lot of background but the other gospels fill in some of the details for us Mark and Luke tell us that this took place in Jesus's home not Nazareth, where he was born, but in Capernaum. Uh, Mark ex is explicit this took place in Capernaum, where Jesus, you remember, had relocated from Nazareth, his hometown. He relocated there. He didn't necessarily take up a profession. He didn't, he didn't build a, a house for himself. He most likely stayed with the apostle Peter in Peter's house. And so it was most likely at this place at Peter's residence that these men arrive carrying their paralytic friend lying on a bed or some sort of lightweight stretcher there weren't wheelchairs in those days it wasn't easy at all for paralytic people to get around most of them would have been homebound they would have had very little opportunity to travel anywhere because the roads were rough and there were 
almost no means for them to get around without a whole crew of people to carry them. So these paralytics, paralyzed people, were completely dependent on others to carry them, to bathe them, to feed them, to watch over them, to keep them warm against the cold, protected against the elements. And many of them experienced lifelong loneliness, if not hunger and discomfort, as they were neglected and sometimes abandoned by society and family. Not only were they completely dependent, but many of them suffered under stigmas. Stigmas in society that would have blamed them for their disease and affliction. You remember in John 9, this was the result of a blind man when Jesus and the disciples passed by, we're told, a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. So they just make a cultural assumption. He is blind. He's suffering from some physical ailment. It must be the direct result of sin. Of course, we know all suffering is the result of the fall of mankind. All suffering wasn't the original plan of God. All of it is the result of, really, the corruption of our bodies and the corruption of this world. But the Scripture doesn't teach that our ailments, our frailties, and our, our illnesses are the direct result of any personal sin. In John 9, Jesus heals the man who's blind, and he goes on to encounter the Pharisees who he tries to explain the situation to them. John 9, 34, and they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and are you trying to teach us? They said, so this is kind of the cultural assumption about people who are ill. And it would have been the assumption about this paralytic guy. He would have not only lived with the agony of his condition, but he would have lived with the stigma and the guilt and the sense that he had done something that led to his particular situation. He lived with the burden always over him that he was suffering in a very real way because of his sins. He would have thought, just like the Pharisee said to the blind man, that he had been born entirely in sins as opposed to other people who weren't supposedly suffering as bad as he was. And so as he was carried along the road that day going to Jesus, his heart was probably filled with a whole mixture of emotions. I'm sure there was some sense of hope that Jesus, just like he had healed so many other people, would perhaps look on him with kindness and heal him. But probably outweighing any sense of hope was an overwhelming sense of uncertainty, wondering if Jesus would look upon him the same way other religious leaders had looked upon him. He had to wonder if he was headed for a very humiliating public rebuke from Jesus. He was probably consumed with a sense of his own sinfulness and wondering if Jesus would have even anything to do with him. 
Mark and Luke tell us when the men arrived at the house, it was so crowded. In fact, you couldn't even get to the doorway. People were packed in the house and they were uh, surrounding it on the outside. And since they couldn't find a way through the crowds, they made their way up to the roof because most homes in those days would have had an outside stairwell or stairway that was built so that people could get up onto the flat roof of their home and enjoy the breezes that were coming off the lake as a way to kind of cool off. So they made their way to the roof and calculated uh, approximately where Jesus would have been inside and proceeded to tear out the mud uh, sort of packed on top of shingles and then remove the roof tiles or shingles, creating an opening where they could lower this stretcher by ropes down in front of Christ. You have to wonder what the thoughts of this paralyzed man were while all this was taking place and laying helplessly, just listening to the reactions of the crowd, some of them no doubt grumbling at the intrusion. As he's lowered down, he is gripped, I'm sure, with anxiety, wondering what Christ's response will be. When he finally gets to the point where he's face to face with Christ, he hears probably what he wasn't expecting at all. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. He was greeted with those kind words, tender affection, like a father to a son. Very similar down in verse 22 when a woman who had a lifelong hemorrhage reaches out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and he turns and says, Take heart, my daughter. It's a term of endearment. In every other place it's always used of children, but here Jesus uses it kind of as a phrase of tender compassion. He could sense the fear in this man's heart. He could sense the anxiety. But he also sensed something else. Because the Bible says he saw their faith. He saw their faith, which we would typically think of as invisible. Maybe, possibly, he saw the evidence of their faith through their actions, a kind of tenacious effort that they were putting in to get close to Christ. But it wasn't just that, I think. It was the fact that he could see into their heart and he could see that they were trusting of him. He saw the faith of this man. He saw the faith of their friends. He saw... That in their hearts, they were willing to go and to do whatever he asked. And so he says, based on this idea of their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. The words afiemi, it literally means to, to drive out or to send out or to drive away. Afiemi means to send something uh, like Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. 
Of course, you know geographically when you met when one one person heads east and the other heads west. They just keep heading east and west, right? I mean, there is no point where you begin heading west if you started out east. In other words, this is sort of an infinite image. He sends your sins infinitely away, never to return, never to accuse you again. This is the greatest gift God has for us to forgive us of our sins. Because it's sins which put us in our predicament to begin with. It is sins that brought death. It's sins that brought deformity. It's sins that brought conditions like this man's. It is sins that have separated us from God and bound us to eternal death. It is sins that have subjected man to emptiness. It is sins, Job says, that have borne him to trouble. It is sins, Isaiah says, that creates within us a lack of peace. It is sins that have created a hostile and rebellious relationship to God. Sin has done all of those things. And in order for us to be reconciled for God, in order for us to be bound for the promise of a resurrection one day, in order for us to have hope of eternal life in a glorified body, in order for us to have any of those things, our sins have to be dealt with. You may find cures temporarily for disease through our technology you might even find ways to overcome paralysis. But you will not find a way to overcome your alienation from God and hence your ultimate punishment before Him. You will not find a way to do that apart from His pronouncement of forgiveness. You might even find ways to soothe your conscience and to numb your emotions. You might even find ways to sort of cope with whatever you're grappling with, the emptiness in your life. But apart from Jesus Christ offering you this kind of forgiveness and absolution, uh, uh, absolving and pardoning of your sins, you have no hope. And so Jesus saw this man being lowered down through the roof and what he saw was not just his crippled body what he saw was everything that was involved with this man's suffering both external and internal he saw not only his bodily affliction but he saw the burden of guilt that he had been carrying in his heart all these many years and he wanted to release this man from that burden and so Jesus did this on the basis of his faith. No ritual, no requirements, no grandiose external sort of uh, uh, acts or demands. He simply saw that the man believed. He saw his faith and he forgave all of his sins. Now, if it just ended there, it would be a tremendous story of compassion and spiritual rebirth. For this man, compassion from Christ and rebirth for the man. But it's not the end of the story because it's this incident that gives way to a confrontation, which is the second element of Matthew's account. The scribes we see in verse 3, the scribes hearing this brand Jesus as a blasphemer. 
Matthew tells us some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. So in their hearts, they're accusing Jesus of denigrating God's character. They're accusing Jesus of misrepresenting God, of attacking God's reputation. That's what blasphemy means. It it is a misrepresentation of God. Again, the other Gospels give us some explicit detail to help us understand what they are thinking. Luke tells us that they're thinking in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? That is the theological premise that they are grounding this in. And of course, from a theological standpoint, they're right. Isaiah 43, verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Verse 25, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. So they had a kind of a a correct theology that they were then using as an accusation or as a basis for accusation against Christ. God is the one who forgives sins, and so therefore this man who claims authority to forgive sins is violating that principle no man for can forgive sins and therefore he blasphemes jews in particularly had or would have struggled with the idea that sin can just be forgiven with no ritual with no ceremony with no penance with nothing like that Forgiveness came by ritual, particularly Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Even for modern Jews, Yom Kippur doesn't even deal with all of your sins. It just deals with certain sins, sins between you and God. But other sins, sins committed against other men or other women, they have to be dealt with by penance, by extra deeds. Judaism, traditional Judaism teaches that to atone for sins against another person, you have to first seek reconciliation from that person. You have to right the wrongs that you've committed against them, if possible. And all of that has to be done before Yom Kippur. In Sidur, the Jewish prayer book, it says, quote, wrongs between humans and their fellows are not atoned by Yom Kippur until the wrong is appeased. And because of this, my heart breaks with me, within me. My bones tremble, for even the day of death does not atone for such sins. In the Shulchan Aruch, the Jewish law code, it says one must uh, go to those who are harmed in order to be entitled to forgiveness. And the one who sincerely apologizes three times for a wrong committed against another has fulfilled their obligation to seek forgiveness. Jonathan Sachs, the head of the largest synagogue, or was the head of the largest synagogue in the UK for uh, almost 20 years, wrote a paper in 2006 that said, we believe that just as only God can forgive sins against God, so only human beings can forgive sins against human beings. That's why Yom Kippur atones only for sins against God, not for sins against other human beings. 
So that's modern Judaism. You can't just forgive all sins with one sort of declaration. It has to involve some process. It has to involve, you know, sort of this this, uh, uh, penance ceremony. You have to go and you have to do certain things and you have to appease and you have to make things right. You have to do things. You can't just be forgiven. We don't know if those traditions date all the way back to the first century, but what we do know, what we do know is that the Pharisees and the scribes thought of themselves as needing very little forgiveness because of their rituals and ceremonies. Luke 7 tells the story of Jesus dining at the home of a Pharisee and a woman enters weeping and begins to bathe Jesus' feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. And the Pharisee who invited Jesus to dinner sees this kind of behavior and he's shocked by it. That Jesus would let a sinful woman, most likely a prostitute, that he would let her do this, touch him in this way. Luke 7, 47, Jesus explains to Simon the Pharisee, he says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. That was his way of describing the Pharisees who believed that they had very little to be forgiven of. Luke 18, 9, they trusted in themselves, the Pharisees did, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So they believed that because of all their rituals and because of all their ceremonies and because of all their deeds, they didn't need forgiveness. They didn't need much forgiveness from God. And what they might have needed, they could take care of through other ceremonies. But what they definitely did not believe is that someone could have all of their sins wiped away with just a word from a man like Jesus, solely based on the fact that they believe. And it was this critical attitude in their heart that elicits a response then from Jesus and brings us to the third element of Matthew's report in verse 4, where Jesus confronts their doubts about his capabilities. He confronts them with a striking question. It says he knew their thoughts. And he said to them, why do you think evil in your hearts? And when he's saying that, he's not talking about their theology. They had concluded that it's only God who forgives sins. But he is confronting their reasoning, which is motivated with evil motives. Luke, in fact, records it this way. Jesus asks them, why are you reasoning in this way? Their reasoning, their thought process, might have begun with a core truth. It might have begun with correct theology. But then it takes that and twists it and suppresses truth all for the purpose of justifying themselves. As I said, Matthew's already established that Jesus 
had in his ministry healed and shown his power multiple times, all the way back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed, he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So there was ample testimony and evidence to his power already. The key to understanding their evil thoughts then is to realize that as they're criticizing Jesus, they were upholding at least one key truth that it's only God who forgives sins, but they were suppressing all the other things that were inconvenient or all the other things that would have been condemning to themselves. They were making an accusation but had discounted a tremendous amount of evidence. And so he exposes them. Verse 5, which is easier to say? Or which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? And his point is clear. It's always easier to say something rather than to do something. Right? We all know that. I mean, I do that all the time. Tell my wife, yeah, I'll watch that. I'll pick that up. It's much easier to say than to do. In this case, infinitely easier. Because we can say all along that we want to heal somebody, but we don't have the power to do it. And we can certainly say that we're going to absolve them of their sins, but we don't have the authority to do that. Of course, the scribes and the Pharisees were wanting to capitalize on the second half of that. There's no visible way to verify that this paralytic sins are forgiven. You can't see literally their sins being washed away. There's no immediate appearance on the outside of their work. You can't verify if it's true or not. But Jesus presents them with this quandary. If I am healing, if I'm able to bring the paralyzed back to full health, if I'm able to cast out demons or whatever it might be, then there's obvious supernatural elements to that. It could be demonic, demonically supernatural, which the Pharisees will claim later in Matthew 12, 24, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he cast out demons. But Jesus shows them how that is internally inconsistent. Demons going around casting out demons. He says a house divided against itself would fall. It's an internally inconsistent position. In fact, he says that kind of accusation is, in fact, blasphemy. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
by which Jesus means it is denying the obvious evidence of the truth of Christ. Denying His miracles, denying even eventually His resurrection, denying His teaching, denying His truth, denying His righteousness. And so ironically, while the Pharisees here, or the scribes I should say, are accusing Jesus of blasphemy, in reality they're the ones who are blaspheming. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're denying the Holy Spirit. They're suppressing and resisting the Holy Spirit, which is what every unbeliever does. They're exposed to truth. And the more and more truth they're exposed to, the more and more they have to suppress and deny that. And so these scribes actually become a graphic picture of the depravity of those to whom you and I preach the one that you are trying to share the gospel with, the one that you're pleading with and praying for, the one that you're calling to repentance, these scribes are a kind of paradigm for them. In the face of even undeniable proof, they still reject the truth. John 12, verse 37, John says, even though he had performed many signs before them yet they were not believing in him he goes on verse 38 this was to fulfill the word of isaiah the prophet which he spoke in which he spoke lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed for this cause they could not believe for isaiah said again he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and i heal them later on in the upper room discourse jesus will tell his disciples the world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it does not behold him or know him Paul will say it in 1 Corinthians, a natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So these Pharisees were standing back and making accusations against Christ when in fact their very accusations were the indictment against them. They were accusing Christ of being the blasphemer when they themselves were the ones blaspheming. They were accusing Christ of maybe being deceptive when they themselves were the ones who were twisting the truth. Jesus says it in John 15, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would, have not, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. So all of these works that he did were giving ample evidence and what the scribes and the pharisees and in fact many other people were doing is they were taking the evidence and they were twisting it they were suppressing it they were denying it and all giving greater and greater evidence of the blindness of their hearts so the outward evidence while it was enough for them to respond to it wasn't enough to convert them but it was certainly enough to condemn them 
To convert them, they needed God doing his miraculous work in their heart, opening up their blind eyes. But as it stands, their prideful rejection of him only increases their condemnation. And so Jesus tells them in John 9, 6, so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise up, take your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. So Jesus authenticates his ability to forgive, his claim to forgive. He authenticates it by his miracle, which is the purpose of miracles. The purpose of miracles is to authenticate the messengers of God who were delivering the gospel when it was first preached. Acts 2.22, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which he performed through him in your midst. That's what God does through miracles. He authenticates his messengers. That's their purpose. That's why signs and wonders and miracles aren't common in the church. They weren't common in the church in the first century. They're not common today because they are not meant to for common everyday use they're meant to authenticate certain individuals unique individuals as spokesmen for God Jesus the apostles as Hebrews chapter 2 says these men who first delivered to us the message of the gospel having been authenticated by signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit so this is what Jesus does. He makes a spiritual claim. He backs it up with a physical miracle. All that's left now is for people to affirm his power and to accept his forgiveness. Matthew closes his report with one final element there in verse 8, how the crowds respond to this. They respond to Christ's authority with reverence and awe. They see it. They're afraid and they glorify God who's given such authority to men. So this was the crowd's response in contradiction to the scribes. They weren't necessarily accusing. They were just in fear. Might seem like a strange response to a healing. But that is the response, Matthew said. And why? Because God had given such authority to men they were responding to the authority more than to the healing uh, implication being the authority to forgive the god had given it to men in the sense that it wasn't reserved just for heaven he gave it to people here on earth through jesus see forgiveness for Israel had always been sort of wrapped up in mystery, mediated through a sacrificial system in the temple, but no demonstrable, immediate assurance that you were forgiven. Year after year, month after month, you would go back to the temple, you would take your sacrifices, you would slaughter them, or the priest would slaughter them for you, and you would go home hoping that you did all the right things so that you could have the kind of forgiveness you were seeking but always with the sense that it wasn't enough. Hebrews says that year after year, they were making these sacrifices, and yet their conscience was never purely cleansed. 
But here Jesus demonstrates authority to forgive all your sins on the basis of faith. And he proves it by his authority to overcome all disease and physical brokenness. And of course, the people, once they recognize that Jesus has this kind of authority, rather than filling them with joy, it fills them with what? Fear. Fear and awe. Because when you recognize that someone has authority to forgive sins, then you also have to recognize that they have the prerogative not to. In other words, they have the authority not only to forgive, but they have the authority to judge. It's just heightened their awareness that what Jesus said to that man, He had not said to them. They immediately began to wonder about their own sins. Another way to say this is the fact that he can forgive sins still leaves open the question of whether he will. And that creates fear. But the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And what Jesus wants you to understand is His perfect love that He demonstrated to the paralytic that day. His love that says that whoever believes in Him will never perish, but have eternal life. He can and He will forgive your sins. He will wipe away your rejection, your abandonment, your guilt, and your shame. He will welcome you the same way He welcomed the paralytic. Take courage, my daughter. Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. The Scripture says, That we who have faith in Him, our sins are forgiven. Ephesians chapter 2 makes it utterly clear. By grace, you're saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Jesus can forgive sins. And Jesus will forgive sins to the person that comes to him by faith. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here this morning and you feel the weight of your sins, God has been working in your heart and you're seeking forgiveness. We'd love to hear how the Lord is working. We'd love to be able to pray with you to be able to hear your testimony. To be able to point you in the Word of God to the promises of God that establish the principle of forgiveness. If you're here this morning and you are 
uh, feeling the Lord calling you, we encourage you, respond today. Uh, Stop by and see us at our welcome center at the end of this service down the hall to the right. Uh, Give us that opportunity to rejoice in the Lord's grace and goodness in your life. Father, we're grateful for this time, thankful for the word that gives us the assurance of your forgiveness, thankful for the compassion that makes you so willing to forgive. Lord, we stand condemned. We readily admit it. You are the judge. You have authority. And we will stand before you. In light of all that, Lord, we place our trust completely and solely in Christ who can wipe away all of our guilt and make us stand complete in Him. We bless you and thank you for that truth. In Christ's name, amen.